0: Alrighty. Yep. Okay.
1: So, so yeah, just get comfortable.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition, another episode of When Movies Were Good, with myself, Rachel, your humble host, and my special guest star, Matt. How are you today?
1: I'm doing good. All the better to be recording with you, my dear.
0: Yes, we're actually we're having a marathon recording session today because we just recorded the first inaugural Uh, episode of our once monthly podcast that we're going to be doing a glimpse of hell so we got knocked that one out and now we're doing this so we can change things up a bit bit more levity here
1: yeah going from serial killers to classic movies uh, it's it's a very great pairing like peanut butter and jam
0: (laughs) it is a very interesting pairing But interesting subjects that you could literally spend your whole life researching. So welcome to our Rita Hayworth double today. She is the link between the two movies. Also, they're both film noir as well. I just sort of realised that when I was watching both of them. Stunning, beautiful films.
1: You can tell just by the shadows. Yeah, the
0: shadows and the light and the way it's the cinematography. Gilda, 1946, which is probably her most, I would say it is her most famous role just that first her first entrance onto the onto the film camera coming across just absolutely stunning and then we also have uh, that was 1946 and then we had The Lady from Shanghai which is 1947 another film noir and directed by her then husband and written by him as well Orson Welles It's
1: hard to really picture the pair of them as a couple
0: I know. I see photos of them and I'm just like, just talk about the odd couple. But it not, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go as far as Beauty and the Beast, but it sort of had that feel to it.
1: Oh, he was just a bit more career-driven.
0: He was, and he wasn't as portly then when Rita was with him, uh, obviously, and they had their daughter Rebecca together, who does I feel that she looks a lot more like her dad than mum. But... Uh, yeah, they, they certainly made an odd couple and unfortunately they couldn't really make it as a couple more to do with Orson than her, but at least they gave it the good old college try, as they say.
1: Yes, indeedy.
0: So let's just speak really briefly about the beautiful, stunning, talented Rita Hayworth, who is also known as one of the most sort of, I guess it was World War II with the American GIs, that famous pin-up picture of her that they all had, and I think Betty Gray will as well. So mm. she was born uh, 1918, uh, October the 17th, New York City, New York. She died, sadly, in New York City as well, uh, May 14th, 1987, age 68. She was one of the first well-known people, well-known celebrities that actually was diagnosed with and died from Alzheimer's disease.
1: Well, I think that was kind of the around that time when that whole generation of actors was sort of really catching up with the effects of time and age, so
0: yeah, smoking, drinking, whatever else they were into, and not that not that modern actors are much different now, but
1: well, some of them seem to be renewing old habits, uh, which the previous generation had warned people against.
0: Yeah, that's that's Johnny true. Depp's
1: quite a big smoker, <laughs> isn't he?
0: <laughs> he is. Patrick Swayze was a chain smoker, so I don't know whether that did or did not lead to his pancreatic cancer death, but it certainly didn't help him.
1: Well, it's supposed to be linked, as I believe. I I think Pavarotti uh, had got that cancer as well, and between his waistline and he did have a cigar habit as well, that wouldn't have helped. Yeah,
0: I think it's not the only reason, but it contributes to it because people get that particular disease and they don't drink or smoke or anything. Um, So getting back to to Rita, she obviously had a very Anglo, sort of more of an Anglo-Saxon name, but she was actually the daughter of a Spanish-born dancer called Eduardo Casino, or Cancino rather, and his partner, Volga Hayworth. That's obviously where her future last name would come from. And as a child, she performed in her parents' nightclub acts. So she was trained as a dancer and as a singer, I believe, although more known for her dancing. So the father believed, Eduardo, that, you know, dancing in movies was where it was going to be at, and he was right about that. So he moved the family out to Hollywood. And while Rita was still a teenager, um... She uh, caught the attention of a Hollywood producer uh, in the mid-1930s and then started using um, Rita Cancino as her name and then became Rita Hayworth when they wanted her to be a bit more Anglo. Um, And she began basically performing in various films, dancing in the backdrop, playing the ethnic girl at the side sort of thing because she sort of had very dark hair. As she started to progress up and up, She was worked with Cary Grant in Only Angels Have Wings in 1939. So after she had a few of these smaller film roles, she started playing more femme fatales, I think she was known for. And then her dancing skills were quite um, well showcased against the very picky, as we know, Fred Astaire, who in later years cited Hayworth as one of his favourite dance partners, although I think Ginger would have a word to say. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I not that it detracted from Ginger's own performance, but didn't um like she was a uh, less experienced, wasn't she? Didn't um Fred yes. have a big part in training her? Yes,
0: that's actually true. I think he just liked the fact that maybe Rita was of a higher standard because she was primarily trained as a as a dancer. Um, so yeah, she had a you know Gilda obviously nineteen forty six opposite Glenn Ford, who she would have a relationship with on and off for the rest of her life. Um, her standout role. Uh, she was sort of what they termed as the quintessential noir woman. She was this temptress. She was an abused victim and that was sort of the balance in, in these films that she was in and lots of sexual imagery of her, especially in some of the outfits that she wore. So that's true of Gilda and true of the Lady of Shanghai. So she would then um, have a child, obviously, with Orson Welles before she broke up with him, Rebecca. Uh, then she had a period of time where she was absent from films. I think she sort of had a bit of a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about working in films too because she didn't like all the hoopla that came with being a celebrity. She was married to Prince Ali Khan and she had her second daughter with him. So he was the son of the Aga Khan III. Uh, So she was away for a little while, then she came back in the early to mid-50s and made more films like Affair in Trinidad and Ceylon, Actually, I think Yvonne DiCarlo was in that one too, Uh, and then she just basically grew frustrated, she had another failed marriage, she appeared sporadically in film, and then her final film was The Wrath of God in 1972. And as we mentioned, she sort of unfortunately was one of the first well-known people to be officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and she died at really the relatively young age of 68.
1: And like, we don't know what it was like for her towards the end, but that can be quite an aggressive illness. My great-grandfather had um, dementia, which often springs from Alzheimer's. I don't know if she got as far as dementia, did she?
0: I think, uh, I think she did. And normally, you know, you know, because people like Ronald Reagan and stuff, they were diagnosed, they they had a bit of interaction, and then you never really saw them again. I think, yeah. Well,
1: even um, the one of the members of Monty Python that was about two years ago, he was diagnosed, cut off all public contact, uh, five minutes later, and then mm. uh, I think he died like maybe a year or two years after.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a very sad thing and it's something that everybody in this day and age needs to watch out for because yeah. it can be linked to things like stress and stuff and obviously this was um, well before that. So the beautiful Rita Hayworth, and we, Matt and I were just actually talking about this, that she had to change her appearance a little bit, not only her name, um, but she also had to change her appearance to look a little less ethnic and other actors had to do that as well. Um She had sort of dyed her hair red from the dark brown that it was and also had her hairline changed a little bit with electrolysis, which I thought would have been a very... That freaked me out. Yeah. Uh, Matt Matt and I were having coffee before we started recording today and he's like, like, what is (laughs) electrolysis? And electrolysis is quite well known now. I've got a friend that does it for a living, but it's like back then I would have thought it was sort of in its... But she was asked to do that, and that actually changed her appearance quite quite a bit and made her look like that fresh all-American girl next door. So it's sad that she actually had to endure that, really.
1: Yeah. Well, you said, when you consider these days, for example, a lot of uh, airline companies now have got in trouble for still requiring their female staff members to wear makeup and skirts. Mm-hmm. So imagine how something like that will go down these days, being forced to not only change your hair color, but to like... Physically change your, I suppose your hairline, mm-hmm. skull shape.
0: Yeah. So she her her birth name was Margarita Carmen Cansino, which is a beautiful name in itself. Although Rita's is quite nice as well. But um, yeah, she really had to change her whole identity. But whether she was um, Margarita or Rita or oh, okay, okay now. Hello, Rachel Margarita. Okay, that's where her Rita comes from. Um, yeah, it didn't matter. She was just a stunning, beautiful woman and a talent and uh, definitely one of the, in that top echelon of of top actresses. So we can kind of discuss these films together, Matt. Um, Gilda, which was directed by Charles Vidor. So let's yep. give the audience um, just the basics of what happens in Gilda. So if you haven't seen this one, this is, one of, this is a film that's a cult status. Um, so it is a considered a uh, film noir. It's also considered a romance too. It's an hour and 50 minutes long. And basically Mr. Mudson, the owner of a casino, learns that his wife Gilda, who he only knew for one day, shares a past with his new right-hand man Johnny, played by, um, I keep thinking Glenn Ford in the Superman movies. Clark Kent's dad, Glenn Ford.
1: Yeah, and I kept thinking of John Ford.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Things get complicated when uh, Gilda's husband, Mudson, disappears, and then we figure out um, there's a lot of thrills and spills, and who did this, and who killed who, and who did that, and. And basically, brilliant dialogue. Yeah, brilliant dialogue, beautiful film. And like in true film noir fashion, there's twists, there's terms, there's shadows, there's light, who goes off together, who stays together. What were your feelings? And, and the film was actually set in Argentina as well. What were your feelings on this film?
1: Like all great film noirs, I feel like I am taken on a great journey. And at the end of it, I'm like, wow. But now that I think of it, what actually was it all about?
0: Yes, yeah, that is, um, what were we saying, was it one of um, Bogie's films? And I was like, what in the heck happened in that film? <laughs> uh,
1: they kissed at the end. That's they the kissed at the end, best. pretty
0: much, blah, 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 blah. They betray each other, they find out that they love each other and they kiss at the end. Yes, that's one of the elements of it, the femme fatale. But I imagine you when you um, go into your own house one day, Matt, you'll have the proverbial blinds, you know, the the vertical blinds with the shadow being cast in the lounge room. And
1: Thank you. I'm thinking of decorating now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I must admit, I think vertical blinds are pretty good for a house because you get those beautiful shadows in the house. But um, just... Horrible to dust, though. Horrible to dust, and I always say that to friends if they're setting up a house, make sure you can dust those vertical blinds. Uh, Well, Glenn Ford was absolutely stunning and handsome. They had a beautiful chemistry in this film and her, you know, very famous uh, entrance into the movie, the dance and singing number. Her singing was overdubbed in this film, Um, and Anita Ellis did the singing for her, but there was one song that she did sing herself so, I mean, I, I saw this film, I was lent the film by a co-worker, actually a much younger co-worker who loves Rita Hayworth. And she said, I've got Gilda. you can borrow it off me. And I did, and I watched it. And I just sort of sat there and just soaked it in. Um, I'm not sure if I felt particularly one way or another. I'm not sure that noir is actually my main go-to for classic films.
1: One thing I was trying to work out the whole time was the casino manager, was he actually a runaway Nazi?
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, maybe I'm stereotyping, oh, just because he's of German background and he's in Argentina one year after World War II's <laughs> ended, he has to be a Nazi. Well, isn't and, that
0: where Hitler ended up, according to the conspiracy theories?
1: Oh, no, no. He uh, flew out on a plane to Manchuria where it was still Japanese occupied and he spent the next 20 years hiding out in Kyoto.
0: Oh, okay. I, yeah. The one I heard about was that he lived in Argentina. We're,
1: we're about the truth. Yeah. We're about the truth <laughs> on this channel.
0: Definitely. Remember, there's no conspiracies, just coincidences. I like that term. Um, but if we jump over to the lady from Shanghai, I think I personally preferred the lady from Shanghai. Um, uh, it's just, certainly
1: a much more uh, popular with audiences these days because of the Wells direction.
0: Yeah, the Orson in the film, Orson being in the film, directing the film, writing the film, working with his partner at the time wanting her to be in the role and also asking her to change her appearance from her very even though it was dyed anyway her very well-known red hair to going to that bottle peroxide blonde Uh, and he wanted to shock the audiences a little bit and she she either way she looked beautiful so
1: yeah quite a bombshell uh, which they tried to make literally um on a on a one of the nuclear bombs
0: Yes, yes, I did. And she was very offended by that, although apparently they were like, oh, but it's a form of, you know, um, a term of endearment that we put. um."
1: Possibly, but then I don't think Kelly Kelly Clarkson likes being used as a swear word.
0: No, that's true. Kelly Clarkson! (laughs) So uh, if we jump over to the lady from Shanghai, which was made the year after, Gilda, so a romantic drifter, and that is Orson Welles. And I didn't realise he was playing an Irishman in this. I thought he did a pretty good job with the accent.
1: Yes, although his effort the whole time was made abundantly clear.
0: Yes, it's uh, it was a good effort, but you knew it was an effort, if that makes sense.
1: Funny, though, he uh, didn't he spend a part early part of his life in Ireland? Yeah,
0: I did read that, yeah, from one of our earlier episodes when we were talking about him. Um, so this film is a romantic drifter, which is Orson awesome Welles's character, gets caught between a corrupt tycoon and his voluptuous wife. And is that a
1: fancy way of saying unemployed?
0: Yes, yes. She's always the voluptuous wife. So similarly in this film, although she was definitely more of a femme fatale in the second film, in The Lady from Shanghai, yeah. because she was sort of instrumental in more things, whereas her character in the first film in Gilda was a little bit more a victim of circumstance. Would you think? Would you say that, or am I maybe getting it wrong there?
1: Yeah, I mean, in Gilda, you keep thinking, what's everyone's agenda against her?
0: Yes, yeah, that's. I right. mean,
1: literally put the blame on me for uh, yeah. for earthquakes and stuff like in that song. That that's like her whole character in the movie.
0: Yeah. Yes, that's true. So I think I preferred her in the Lady from Shanghai because. I felt there were, it's sort of hard to say because what she does in Gilda is so iconic with just everything from her look to the musical numbers to the way she's dressed, to the hair, everything. But I felt like she was able to get into more of a character in the lady from Shanghai.
1: Yeah, I still have in my head pictures of her blonde hair and that hall of mirrors in the final shootout scene. Uh, that, um, it's so iconic, powerful on your edge of your seat, basically I did like that scene a lot. Yeah,
0: and that's been replicated in many other films. Um, it's A lot of horror films have that sort of thing. They're in a maze and Although I actually fiction. wonder if that
1: might have been partially borrowed from Charlie Chaplin because there's a movie he made probably 30 years before that one called The Circus, and obviously that was intended in much more of a farcical sense, but it's mm-hmm. where Chaplin as the tramp is being chased around by a policeman and another robber. And they get confused in this mirror space. And so, Wells, I wonder if he could have taken any inspiration from it.
0: Yeah. And also, I was, because I've just found The Lady from Shanghai stunning. And what I liked is a lot of it was shot on location. And Orson had insisted on that, insisted on getting outside rather than doing as much in the studio, although obviously some was done. Uh, I really like that. It really stuck with me the visuals that he had and he used a lot of long takes so they sh- shot it around sort of in That was a good
1: way of sort of sabotaging the efforts of producers who wanted to influence their own cuts
0: That's that's right I yes and he so he was very savvy as well but just the fact that he was jumping from stage to screen to stage to screen pretty Effortlessly. I mean, you know, now there's such different entities, but back then, I guess he just saw it as a form of storytelling, and I just need to adapt because he was learning about films as people were learning about films, and they were all doing it all together, um, directing, writing, all that sort of stuff. So he was really there at the dawn of, of or at least sort of just the immediate period after the talkies, etc had started in the late 20s of really developing the skills of a director, of a screenwriter, working with cinematographers and they were all learning together, whereas I guess now directors and writers come in and there's such a format to everything.
1: Yeah, and his different demands would have placed extreme demands on both the on-set location but also studio because, for example, a lot of the innovations he made with Citizen Kane Mm. typically, in in a nutshell, all the effects that critics will tell you about basically relied on a huge amount of lighting, which you would have needed yeah. in a studio environment. So if you wanted to do similar things in, uh, for example, on uh, location, it would have been even more complicated.
0: Yes. And um, so I would say for me, I pref- I just preferred the story in the lady from Shanghai. Uh, I like the fact that there was, you know, she – was definitely more of the scurrilous nature than, say, Gilda was in the first film. There was a sort of clear switch up at the end when it was found out that she was sort of the perpetrator of the crime in this film. And Orson Welles sort of came to understand that. And I love those big court scenes they do in these sorts of films. That's how, I mean, courtrooms are well here in Australia, they're not like that, but there's just dozens of people sitting there that's crowded and looks like a theatre or something. And, um, I really enjoy all those. Well, they those.
1: have all those television programs of courtrooms over in America.
0: Yeah, that's right. Even was um, was it Shadow of a Doubt with Montgomery Clift? When we were discussing, there was a pretty big courtroom scene in that one as yeah. well. And I really enjoy, yeah, the films that we've we've done where they're in the courtroom and, and there's just this big sort of like gallery of people, and it's really it's really interesting because everyone's sort of like spilling over. I mean, where does the jury sit? Where are the defenders? Everyone's kind of Ram together in these rooms, and I just I just love the whole visual aspect of that. So that was one of my favourite scenes in The Lady from Shanghai. But ultimately, I just found that a bit more of a satisfying film. I really like the script. I really loved reading the film. I thought it gave her a little bit more. But Gilda, for me, is just more about presentation, the, her beauty in the film, the way it looks. I also really like Glenn Ford as well, and the fact that they were involved with each other too – but she obviously had chemistry with Orson because she was married to him and with Glenn. So,
1: yeah, Glenn was the just the right balance of slimy for the role.
0: Yeah, he was. Um, the first time I saw Glenn was when he played uh, Superman's father in 19 – what are we talking about? 70, 70 – oh, God come on, 78, I'm pretty sure it's the late 70s, and for him to sort of do that role, he was really perfect for it. He played Mr Kent in that film, and I had no idea as a young child he had this whole other body of work, so it's always hard for me to sort of separate him away from that very first famous role that I saw him in, and obviously Marlon Brando was in that film and one of the loves of my life, Christopher Reeve, is not with us anymore. So yeah. I always remember him from that. So it's always great to see him. And I know that he and Rita were involved and they were friends and lived very close to each other for the rest of their lives. So obviously there was some sort of unrequited love or something that they couldn't quite work out to maybe be together. And well, she it's also... nice
1: when they do have some relationships that work on the set.
0: Yeah, they do. And um, I don't know too much about the gossip in these films, like what the relationships were like on set, but I do know that Orson was very intent on having... Reader play the lady from Shanghai and play the lead role in this film. Uh, I'm not too sure about how I think she was seen in in another film, and then that's how she got cast in Gilda. So and that's naturally what happened with all of the contract player actors and actresses back then. They were seen or loaned to another studio for something else. It really was like a full time job. It's not like that now. It's a very up and down, you're hot, you're not, you know, what films are you contracted to? And you have to sort of run yourself as a small business person now and it's very, very different back then. But I just visually I love both films and it's something to watch on a Saturday night and just sit back and relax.
1: Yeah, with a nice uh, cup of tea and caramel popcorn.
0: Definitely. I mean you might find yourself like I did rereading the plot just to make sure because if you let your mind drift away for a little bit and you miss one of the twists, then you're like, oh, hang on, what's happened there again? So I have to, because for me, you know, I my favourite types of films, you just start somewhere and finish somewhere. So a lot of the sort of plot twists and stuff, sometimes I'm like, hang on, what have I just watched here? If I let my mind go away for just a second. So I'm not the best person sometimes to watch film noir because they can be quite complicated. And while it is a worthwhile watch, you really need to be aware that there's going to be twists and turns and just pay good attention to the films, I think.
1: Yeah, well, film noir, when you uh, really get down to the plot, quite often they're quite uh, basic crimes, uh, but they're more about the moral dilemma that would often uh, feature in this rather cynical post-war period because you kind of went from after the forced patriotic tone of World War II, you go to that brief period of film noir of this real brutal self-analysis and the values that you work within before going into the sort of counterculture that we saw with the likes of Joan Plowright and uh, James Dean.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, so, I mean, each film in – each era in classic cinema sort of has their – and this was the – Would you say that the era that these two films were made in, that was the epitome of what film noir was?
1: Definitely. It was kind of like uh, during the war to late 40s, so people that are either directly in the war or seeing what happens around it, because on the one hand you'd have all those bright and colourful cheer up the boys images, but then beneath the surface...
0: Yeah, there was, yeah, and and really, I mean, that goes in a lot of Western countries. There's, you know, what's happening at the time and the general things in pop culture and then things that are simmering under the surface. And back in the era when these, you know, films were made, women were quite still repressed quite sexually. It wasn't till sort of the liberating 60s and then, you know, things kind of swung one way to another and now they're swinging another way again uh and i'm just i'm not really familiar too much with charles vador who was the director of gilda um i just want to have a look and see some so again another hungarian so lots of hungarians made their their way over um, you know that's your family background, Matt. So. People love
1: to have goulash on a yeah. film set.
0: <laughs> well, Matt's dad's side of the family's Hungarian. So. Yes,
1: so I can make all the goulash and sausage jokes I want, and nobody can reproach me.
0: Yeah, that's 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 true. And um, so, yeah, uh, again, Matt and I always love how they're able to just. And now I will pronounce this correctly because your dad might pick me up on this Budapest. Is that is that how we say it? Uh,
1: I don't. Th- I don't think anybody, even from that land, uh, will Cause. give you an exact answer.
0: <laughs> well, Matt's dad was telling us a story about Budapest, and he made sure he said it that way. So I would say Budapest. but Maybe know, that
1: could be another equation for that machine that worked out the answer to the world in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah,
0: it can be one of those sorts of things where, you know, uh, the super collider or something put it into the... Uh, but you know he's my oh yes he made cover girl he made cover girl with Rita Hayworth as well song to remember Gilda the loves of Carmen a farewell to arms so he a very very well known the film. one with Gary Cooper it must be yes yeah. hang on let's go into that one 1957 deluxe color Ernest Hemingway's 1929 semi auto by David O Selznick and oh that was the one uh no Rock Hudson. And Jennifer Jones. Oh, the
1: one I'm thinking of with Gary Cooper was like 30, so it must be a different Must one. be
0: the first version of that one, you know yeah. You
1: know you've written a good book when two films about it are made within your lifetime.
0: Yes, that's that's true. Um, and then, of course, Orson Welles got the idea to write the screenplay for The Lady from Shanghai from, a, a very well-known book at the time, and I just want to get the audience that, that name quickly. But, I mean, look, overall, definitely worthy watches. both. I would say that the more um, I watch film noir, the more I appreciate it. But I also kind of know I'm a bit more into what they call kitchen sink dramas. Not that a lot of classic American films have kitchen sink dramas. We might have to go to Britain to get a bit more into, you know, life in the house and what's happening. But yeah. I really like, you know, the stories about, you know, people in the house and with their families and some of the goings on on there. And, um, yeah.
1: Very often, film noirs are quite often the real opposite of domesticity. They're yeah. like detectives that uh, live out of their office, uh, fallen women who don't have a past, the complete opposite of domestic bliss.
0: Yeah, that's true. If I Die Before I Wake by Sherwood King, that's the original book that um, the lady from Shanghai was based on. So that might even be interesting to have a read. So that's our discussion for this week. Thank you. We've sort of done a marathon recording session today, so it's been good to get through both of them for our first time and hopefully onward and upward. Of course, Matt will tell you where to find us. We always mean to do this at the start of the show for When Movies Were Good and we we need to work on that. We will work on that.
1: Well, yeah, well, we hope you enjoyed it anyway and uh, thank you for listening all the way to the end and so you get rewarded by me telling you that you can find us on (laughs) Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at When Movies Were Good to find all our various social media releases.
0: Now, next time, um, one I wanted to do... Uh, the inappropriate jokes will probably be coming thick and fast because we're doing our first Ray Maland double. Which, Rachel's
1: blushing already.
0: Oh, oh, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, we're doing Lost Weekend, which she won an Academy Award for, 1945. I've wanted to watch this one for a while, and I said, you know what? Um, it's time to hire it. It's time to watch it, and I. It's. I think this is going to be more up my alley, The Lost Weekend. And then something for Matt that he will love. We all love Alfred Hitchcock's dial-in for Murder where um, Ray is working with the wonderful Grace Kelly.
1: Yeah, I nagged my local theatre into producing that play.
0: Yes, and <laughs> a very interesting production of it Of it it was. Um, the highlights and lowlights, I guess we could... <laughs> Without going into too much further detail. But it was actually, it was a, well, I would say it was a sumptuous production. It looked really good.
1: Yes, fueled by lots of tea.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed our Rita Hayworth double. Such a beautiful and talented woman and uh, an absolute icon in the classic film era. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies.